0: Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher, and we're joined today by Boston Globe columnist and the author of American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division, Michael A. Cohen. Great to have you on the show.
1: Great to be here. Thank
0: you. So the the paperback version of the book comes out uh, this June, 2018, 50 years after the 19. 68 election, uh, and, and what about the election did you think uh, was worth uh, exploring in book length?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, there is sort of, a, I think, a sort of folklore about 68 as being this very decisive moment in American politics, this sort of shift uh, away from, if you will, sort of the New Deal coalitions or democratic dominance in presidential politics into sort of the conservative uh, backlash that emerged out of 68. And that was a part of the initial decision to write about, write about this election. But the more I looked at it, the more I sort of realized this was um, a transformative moment on just a, so many levels, uh, levels I hadn't even really considered. Uh, you know, transformations within the political parties, uh, Democratic Party moving more to the left, especially on foreign policy, Republicans moving more to the right, especially on social issues. Um, you saw, I think, this, the emergence of this very, very pronounced racial divide in American politics that hadn't been there really before. Um, and which I think in many ways has, has reshaped American politics uh, as much as anything else come out of 68. Um, but it's also, you know, little things like the, the fact that, that what came out of 68 was the creation of the primary system, um, which means the, the, the the whole way we choose candidates for president. Uh, we didn't have this, you know, two-year process of running for president in which people, um, you know, uh, spent uh, months and months camped out in Iowa, New Hampshire. It, just, it didn't exist. It wasn't. Part, it wasn't part of the uh, political process then, and now it is. Um, and and that change came in a large measure because of the uh, a- efforts of a reformers in the Democratic Party. So it really was just this thing situation where the more I looked at it, the more I was struck by uh, how uh, just an uh, uh, inflection point '68 had been, and and how much of the changes wrought by 68 continue to shape our politics today.
0: As you suggest that the the liberal consensus began to crumble uh, at this point, we had this long stretch coming from uh, the Roosevelt administration, FDR's administration, extended with Truman, even though, uh, Republic, even though Republicans take over in the 50s with Eisenhower. He's not a, a far right Republican. Uh, and Kennedy and Johnson uh, follow him. Uh, you have the, uh, this is a long stretch that involves uh, American ascendence uh, in foreign policy, uh, great strides in economic uh, prosperity. Why did that all begin to fall apart in nineteen sixty eight?
1: Well, that is a great question, <laughs> and there is a lot of ways to answer that. Um, I think you know there is a, a host of factors I think played a role. Um, the civil rights movement is a huge factor. Um, a lot of the liberal consensus that emerged out of, out of the, um, the New Deal and the War, uh, post-war years through the Cold War is reliant on the fact that civil rights is, for the most part, um, sort of pushed to the side. Um, and, and politicians on both sides are not forced to make tough political choices around civil rights. And that begins to change uh, with the civil rights movement and certainly changes in '64 with the signing of the, the Civil Rights Act by President Johnson, and that's where you see the divide in politics really begin to emerge because, you know, the Republican nominee Barry Goldwater opposes the Civil Rights Act and and, and um, receives the support of, solid Southern states, uh, mainly because of his opposition to civil rights, and so as a result he gets about 10 percent, I'd say, of the African American vote. I think less than that even, and that. You see then the, the emergence of this racial divide in American politics that didn't exist before. I mean, nineteen sixty Nixon gets about thirty-five percent, I think it is, of the African-American vote. Um, and by sixty-eight, for Humphrey, it's less than ten percent. So you see this divide emerge around civil rights. And that's a big part of the crumbling liberal consensus because you know, the people that are affected by the civil rights movement, you know, by integration, especially in the North, um, are Democratic voters. Uh, you know, it's it's things like um Integrating neighborhoods, integrating schools, integrating workplaces—all of those things begin to impinge on, um, for lack of better terms, of white privilege and the advantages that white Americans had enjoyed for many, many years, um, and from Democratic politicians. And so, I think that's a, a huge part of the dividing line is along is along the racial lines and because of race. The other factor, uh, the other two factors, are, are crime. Uh, as crime increases at the 1960s. Uh, it, it raises questions about Democrats' ability to govern effectively, um, and they, have no, they didn't have a good response to these kind of criticisms. And so I think one of the results is that you see people moving toward Nixon and moving to Republicans out of concern over personal safety. Concerns that I should add, by the way, were totally legitimate. Crime did increase exponentially in the 1960s. Uh, dramatic increases across you know, every imaginable uh, criminal, every metric that you might use him to measure crime rates.
0: And we do, do we know why that happened? Or was this a cyclical thing? Or was there some sort of societal factors going on that drove I, up crime? That
1: is a sort of, that's an, actually, I didn't get to do in the book, but, uh, you know, it, there's a lot, I think that there's a societal factors, cultural factors, but whatever there is, but the political result of this is that crime really is the number one issue in 1968. Crime and riots. Because you also have to remember mm. that beginning in 60, in 65 with the Roths riot, you see this, this annual, uh, you know, uh, events of of major riots happening in American cities in '65, it's Watts; '67, it's Newark and Detroit. in '68, it's the riots after the King assassination. So that also, along with the crime increase, has a huge impact as well, and convinces people that they to support you know Democrat Republican candidates who promise to to, to put an end to these rising crime rates. Um, and the did final, did, yeah. did sorry, go on? No, I the final factor is Vietnam. That's the final thing, I think, that really drives the, the end of liberal consensus, because liberal consensus for a long time relies on the idea that that, that both Democrats and Republicans agree that America has a responsibility to fight communism around the world. And that's what allows Lyndon Johnson to get support for sending you know, half a million troops to Vietnam to fight the war in Vietnam. Um, but by 68, the war in Vietnam appears lost. Um, and Democrats, you know, basically within the party, uh, anti-war activists, demand a change and demand that the, that the that Johnson, you know, be forced out of office, which of course he was, and support anti-war candidates. So the, the war in Vietnam ends up creating this huge divide among Democrats, which um, in some ways still remains to some extent, the, the, the divide between sort of the elites and the grassroots when it comes to foreign policy and use of military force. But uh, Vietnam, I think, is the sort of final nail in the coffin of, of the liberal consensus. And certainly on foreign policy, it's a nail in the coffin.
0: Uh, I do want to explore uh, Vietnam, but just to get back to uh, the rioting for a second: Did did voters uh, connect, make a connection between the rioting that happened during the Johnson administration and the Civil Rights Act? Was the Civil Rights Act blamed for those riots? Yes, Uh, you had
1: not not by all Republicans. This is an important thing to remember. There were Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller and George Romney who were civil rights, were liberals on civil rights, who didn't try to exploit racial fears. But then you had someone like Ronald Reagan uh, in California in 66 who very much did uh, try to exploit those fears and argued that the permissiveness uh, of uh, liberals toward uh, uh, a crime is what contributed to the increases, but also argued that, um, you know, Democrats and liberals had promised, uh, you know, streets paved with gold, as I think Reagan used to say to to African-American voters. And when we're unable to deliver those promises that, that, the result was were, were these riots and these demonstrations, and so that became a big talking point for Republicans. And their argument, I think, but more directly, because it even but at that time, Reagan being a bit of exception, most of them were unwilling to sort of make their 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 criticisms of Democrats racially coded. So instead, they sort of bought into this argument that it was this permissiveness, and that we that, you know, cops weren't being given enough leeway to to, to, to arrest people, and, and judges were having their hands tied, and rhetoric that you become used to hearing for the last fifty years.
0: Now, uh, a lot of people look at the Robert Kennedy assassination as the hope of a figure who could bring about, uh, a renewed phase of racial healing, uh, looking back at how he responded to the Martin Luther King assassination, uh, and, uh, managed to, uh, prevent rioting from occur or is attributed that his speech in Indianapolis prevented a riot from occurring there when it happened elsewhere, uh. And then he gets assassinated a few months later. Some people look at that and say, "Oh, if only he wasn't shot, he would have been president and we wouldn't have had all this racial backlash. We would be living in harmony today. Uh, I, I get the sense from, from your book that you think it's, that's a little too pat. Uh,
1: yes, and and quite a bit. Um, it, 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 the thing about Kennedy that's interesting is that his candidacy was, I think, emblematic of the racial divide. Um, because the more... Kennedy was seen... Uh, by and large, as a um, a candidate of black America. And this is something, by the way, that Kennedy himself acknowledged, um, which is one of the reasons why when he ran for president and ran the primary in Indiana, uh, which was a pretty conservative state, he actually uh, played down talk about race reconciliation and played up uh, the fact that he had been the chief law enforcement officer when he was attorney general, uh, when his brother was president, um, sort of played up on on fears of crime and Years of, of welfare dependency and things like that. Um, but the thing with, with with Kennedy is, the more he he people got to see him during the campaign, the less they liked him. And the group that liked him the least was actually white voters. White voters became too, uh, hugely alienated uh, toward Kennedy uh, because men, and, and including including uh, white working class voters, who saw him as somebody who was putting the needs of, of black voters and white voters as somebody who was stirring up trouble. Um, and as somebody who, uh, uh, I think, to, to, to put it bluntly, couldn't be trusted by a lot of white voters. And so interesting, one of interesting things that happens in, in, in the primaries that he runs in is in Indiana, he, he wins the primary because he largely wins his 90% support from African Americans. But he loses a lot of suburban voters to Gene McCarthy, um, who, had, who had gotten in the race uh, a few weeks before, a few months before um, Kennedy and had, and had almost beaten Johnson uh, in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, then in Oregon... Uh, he loses to McCarthy, uh, in part, because as one of his advisors put it. There are no ghettos in Oregon. It's a very homogenous white state, a uh, very suburban state. And again, they supported McCarthy. And finally, in, in California, you know, I, I looked at some of the polling that the campaign had done. Um, and they basically what was interesting is that they had Kennedy with, with big leads, but they saw vulnerabilities and that that uh, white voters, you know, saw him as somebody who wasn't an ally, someone they couldn't rely on. And Kennedy went from a double-digit lead in, in, in California at the beginning of the, of the race to basically winning by, by uh, about five points. And um, again, in suburban counties like Orange County, uh, he lost to McCarthy. Uh, he won because he had strong support from, from African-American and Hispanic voters. So in a lot of ways, Kennedy's campaign, I think, shows that uh, rather than showing whites and blacks coming together, it actually shows how a politician who was perceived as being too friendly to black Americans... Um, create a backlash among white voters and white Democratic voters, it it should be noted. Um, And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why I'm convinced that had Kennedy lived, he he never would have been the nominee of the party. He he simply alienated too many people. Um, He upset Southerners hated him. The unions hated him. uh, The establishment hated him. Uh, McCarthy supporters didn't like him much either because they had stolen McCarthy's thunder. He was not a popular guy. And of course, Lyndon Johnson hated him more than anybody else, probably. So a combination of all of those factors would made it very hard for him to have gotten the nomination uh, at the convention. In Chicago.
0: Would you argue, I, I've heard argued that, that Humphrey would have won Hubert Humphrey, who uh, was Johnson's vice president, who didn't really run in the primaries, but again, this is a time when primaries were not the determining factor who right. becomes the nominee. Uh, and that Humphrey had a lot of delegates lined up already by, by his uh, position as a, as a party leader. So even if candy lived, Humphrey probably would have gone the nomination anyway. Do you think that's accurate?
1: I became convinced working on the book that had Kennedy not been assassinated, Humphrey would have won. And the biggest reason, I think, two, two reasons for this. One is that, you know, you have to remember, Kennedy assassination happens like two months after King assassination. Two months after, not just King assassination, but but major riots. The, the worst violence in America since the Civil War uh, in, the, in the week, in the days after the King assassination. Um, and so I think when Kennedy is shot, I think that was for a lot of Americans sort of their breaking point. when they said, that you know this is not this is getting worse the, the violence is getting worse in america it's getting routine and it's time for a political change it's worth remembering that that up until kennedy was assassinated uh humphrey led nixon in, in head-to-head polling um it was after the assassination that his, he began to uh fall behind nixon um in polling i think that's one factor and the second factor is um more of an inside baseball thing but But the the biggest problem that Humphrey ended up having was that he couldn't separate himself from Johnson on the war in Vietnam. Johnson would not allow him to take out his own sort of ground on Vietnam that was, you know, calling for a bombing halt in Vietnam, calling for, you know, ramping up peace talks, things like that. He didn't want him to to divert divert administration policy. But I think if Kennedy lived, and Johnson uh, had to contemplate the possibility that uh, Bobby Kennedy, who he despised, could be the nominee of the party after him, I think he would have done anything Humphrey wanted him to do in order to prevent Kennedy from being the nominee. And the one thing that would have, would have certainly hurt Kennedy's chances or hurt McCarthy's chances or, or help, and helped Humphrey is if he had shown some more uh, um, a liberal, a liberal approach or more, more moderate approach on the war in Vietnam. Had he called for a bombing halt, for example, which is something that, that Kennedy and, and McCarthy supported, I think that would have, uh, Johnson would have been okay with that. And I think it would have helped Humphrey immeasurably within the party. He wouldn't have had to deal with the, the riots in Chicago in the same way, the dissension that happened at the convention. He would have come at the convention as sort of a unifying figure in which I think a lot of anti-war liberals would have gotten behind him, uh, even if they, didn't, they weren't, weren't crazy about him, even if they didn't like the fact that he'd supported Humph- uh, Johnson in the war in Vietnam. He was better than Dick Nixon. So, you know, in the end, at the end of the day, a lot of liberals did come back to him. Uh, but, you know, it, it happened a little too late in the race, I think, for it to be decisive enough.
0: Uh, so shifting to, uh, Vietnam, you, you deliver a very harsh verdict on LBJ for what happened in Vietnam. Um, uh, uh, why do you treat that as a, as a personal failing on his part, as opposed to, uh, just a, a bad set of circumstances that no president would be able to handle handle all that well?
1: Because there's, there's two reasons. I think, first of all, uh, Johnson and we know this already. This is not controversial. Lied his way into the war. He lied to many people about uh, during the campaign of '64 about his plans to get involved in Vietnam. Um, he lied, um, um, I think, about the extent of American involvement. He lied about you know the, the chances for success in Vietnam. Um, and you know the thing that's interesting to me, and I and I didn't and realize this since I was working on the book, is that Humphrey had actually warned him in the in the February of 65, not to get involved in Vietnam, that if he did so, it would, it would create a backlash against him, a backlash against the party, and, a back, and that backlash would come from the left. And of course, Humphrey was right about that. Um, and he also said it would, it would undermine the Great Society agenda, uh, his domestic policy agenda, and he was right about that also. Um, so I think, I think that's the, the first problem. But the, the bigger problem, was Johnson, and that's bad enough, believe me, but the bigger problem to me is, and I, I think this is like the underreported uh, period of the Vietnam War is the fall of 1967, because in the fall of 67, it is increasingly apparent that the war is a stalemate and that the U.S. cannot succeed militarily in Vietnam. Public support is falling for the war, there's dissension within the Democratic Party over the war, Uh, you know, uh, Johnson can't even get other countries in the region to support sending more troops to Vietnam, even though the, the, the war is predicated in part on this domino theory, on, on the idea that if Vietnam falls, these countries will be next. But these countries didn't want to get involved in Vietnam. They didn't see it as, 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 as their, their national security interest. So there's all these. Uh, and, and, and finally, you have Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense and one of the biggest cheerleaders for the war, telling Johnson that it's time to, to, to get out of Vietnam. And so Johnson in the fall of 67 has a choice. He's got, he's, got a, he's got a real option here what to do. And, and, the, and to me, it, it is screaming... to to begin to wind down the U.S. presence in Vietnam. And he does not do it. He instead chooses to kick the can down the road. Um, His administration launches what they call Operation, um, uh, it's called Success, I believe, an effort to kind of convince Americans that that the war is going well and that that the U.S. can still win in Vietnam. Um, And in the short term, you you see a slight increase in his poll numbers, but then the Tet Offensive happens in January of 68, and it pretty much destroys johnson's credibility um and destroys his presidency from which you know he was never able to recover at that point it's not a huge surprise that two months later he would end up um saying he was not seeking (laughs) re-election
0: well you quote him in the book saying uh if i left that war and let the communists take over south vietnam then i would be seen as a coward and my nation would be seen as an appeaser uh so if he did uh pull out by 67. It w- was Johnson's assessment wrong? I mean, would, would, th- would there have been a harsh work delivered on him in that scenario as well? No, I don't think so, actually. This is the great irony of this. People think, think of
1: Johnson's a great politician. I think he was actually like a really poor, <laughs> really poor politician who I think, you know, in, in the fall season, people were upset about the war. They wanted it over. They, I, and I don't think they really cared. You know, most Americans at the time actually wanted the U.S. to escalate the war. They thought that it would end it more quickly. They thought escalating the war would d- deliver a blow to the, the North Vietnamese and get the U.S. out. What they wanted was to get out. And uh, either by, you know, by withdrawal or, or, or use of military force. And again, it was mainly what use of military force. I think if Johnson had gone to the American people and said, look, we've tried, we've made its effort, and it's time for us to begin to draw down troops and, and uh, you know, do the same thing that he did in March of 68 when he, when he announced he wasn't seeking re-election and basically say that the time is to come to pursue peace talks with the North Vietnamese, I think most Americans would support it. Uh, Yeah, the right conservative, the right wing would have gone after him for it. I think most Americans would have been happy that there was a light at the end of the tunnel—an actual light, not a proverbial light—an actual light at the end of the tunnel for the war in Vietnam. So that—that is the big mistake. uh, I think the the the, the problem here. But but your quote actually, the one you quote is really useful too, because the the crux of the problem for Johnson is he had personalized the war. He had made the war about himself, and he had his own credibility. And I think. To a degree that I find hard to, to comprehend, he was willing to um, to uh, undermine his own domestic policy agenda, the Great Society agenda, uh, in order to maintain his policy in Vietnam. And a lot of ways, you know, he is responsible. I think more than any other politician for Nixon winning in '68, and he could have taken actionable steps that would have helped Humphrey win, and he didn't do it because of Vietnam because he didn't want Humphrey to distance himself from him on the on the war. And in the process, he undermined uh, his own great society agenda. And that is that is hard to, hard to understand, hard to comprehend how he could have done that. Um, but I think it sort of speaks to the unique psychology of Johnson, who was a very deeply insecure man, uh, somebody who I, I think personalized politics to a, a dangerous degree, and on Vietnam by 67, 68, had become obsessed with the war and obsessed with um, either being proven correct or not being proven wrong. I'm actually not sure which one it would be. Probably the latter, not being proven wrong, but I'm not totally sure. What I do know is that the, and I, it's funny, I talked to a lot of I interviewed a lot of LBJ biographers about this. And I was always struck by when I asked them this so of why do you think he he didn't let John, you know, Humphrey distance himself from the war in Vietnam? Well, I, I, the answer was I don't know. You know, there was there, I think people sort of can sort of it's, he's the most opaque political figure, and I think it's hard to know what his motivations were. I, I do believe it was a personal issue with him, uh, a flag-waving contest, if you will. I'll, I'll use the, the, the cleaner term there instead of the off-color one, which Johnson would have used, of course.
0: Even towards the end of his presidency, he he was still trying to negotiate a peace agreement, right? He, he wasn't trying to uh, strictly win militarily by the end, correct? No, so he was, and this
1: is what's sort of fascinating is that by the, so by October '68, the North Vietnamese and the and the Soviets are scared of the possibility of Nixon winning, and so because of that because of that that fear, they the North Vietnamese offer major concessions to to, to the stalled peace talks, which moves the process forward. They gave in quite a bit to, to the to the U.S. gave in to the U.S. demands. I think one of the one of Trump uh, the, Johnson's aides said ninety percent they give away ninety percent of the concessions here. And Johnson still wasn't sure he wanted to make the deal. Still wasn't sure. He wanted 100%. And an quote by a Clark Clifford, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, who sort of said he watching in wonderment as if Johnson wanted to do everything he possibly could to not help Humphrey. Because everyone sort of agreed that a peace agreement or some kind of appearance of a peace agreement by the, you know, in October 68 would have been enough to, to push Humphrey over the top. Um, and it, of course, it didn't happen. There was a, 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 a bombing halt announced on Halloween, uh, but the, North, the South Vietnamese said they weren't going to go to peace talks, and so it kind of undermined the diplomatic effort. And so I think, you know, uh, it's, it's, he, he was interested in moving forward on the peace agreement, but he, he wanted it only on his terms. And, it, you know, you can you go back a year earlier, in 67, he started talking about peace as well, but again, on terms that were never acceptable to the North Vietnamese. When finally he gets the compromise that he wants, He's still reluctant to do it, um, I, you know. And again, I think there was some part of him that didn't want to didn't want to be seen as helping Humphrey, and I think almost preferred Nixon winning uh, because he thought Nixon would be, would be tougher in Vietnam than Humphrey.
0: Oh, we're talking with Michael A. Cohen, author of American Maelstrom: The 1968 Election and the Politics of Division, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, let's shift a little bit and talk about the Republicans and. Um, Uh, Another, the independent conservative in the race, George Wallace, you actually say um, or have said uh, George Walsh, George Wallace, no politician did more to change the narrative and language of American politics. That's quite a statement for someone who was a a third party also ran. Uh, uh, But what what makes you give him that much um, uh, historical impact?
1: You know, it's just, um, I think it's one of these things where, where Wallace becomes the voice of conservative populism. You know, we, we, we're living in an era for the last uh, 50 years of which anti-government conservative populism, populism is the dominant political narrative. Um, and to a large extent, uh, uh, you know, there were obviously conservatives who, who talked in the language of anti-government populism. I mean, Goldwater did, Reagan did, um, but Wallace did in a way that I think was much more accessible to a lot of um, A lot of white voters, frankly, because he uh, complained about uh, crime. He complained about liberals who were basically too permissive with crime. He complained about um, a a, uh, spending taxpayer dollars on things like welfare and anti-poverty initiatives and things like that. Um, And he did it in the kind of colorful, flowery, racist language that has become imitated by uh, generations of Republican um, uh, politicians. Um, you know, Republicans didn't really start winning elections until they found a way to um, turn sort of conservative ideology into a language that was accessible to once formerly, you know, formerly Democratic voters. And uh, I think the, the key was on crime. It was on cultural issues. And again, those were the things that Wallace talked the most about. You know, Wallace used to say things like, used to complain about, you know, bureaucrats in ivory towers who, um, who couldn't park their bicycles straight bearded bureaucrats who couldn't park the bicycle straight. He would talk about riots and say his solution to a riot is if you pick a brick, you get a bullet in the brain. I mean, he had, that was kind of like tough, aggressive uh, language that, that, uh, that has become popularized by Republicans. And he also found ways, it's, I think it's fascinating about Wallace, he was a liberal. <laughs> there was a strange part about him that was a domestic policy liberal. Like Julian Bond, I, I say this because Julian Bond said it, so I feel like I get the credibility making this point. Julian Bond used to say about Wallace I, I don't understand the man because he's liberal on every issue except for race. And it was true. He was a New Deal liberal. He, he was fine with spending, spending money, government spending money. He had a, a, a platform for his political party that basically had you know called for all of this new domestic spending. The difference was that Wallace was very clear in I, saying that we want spending for, that helps white people, not that helps black people, not that helps poor people. That was kind of the divide. And that's, that's one of the things I think Republicans have picked up. You know, they're not opposed to government. They're opposed to government spending money on people that don't, that don't vote Republican Party. Uh, you know, and uh, I think to a large extent, that's kind of the, the rhetoric that Wallace kind of gave to us, unfortunately.
0: So so for Reagan's rhetoric, and Reagan was governor of California in, in the 60s. Uh, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in just a second. Uh, Nixon, of course, was vice president, ran for governor in 62, then runs for president in 68. Did, was Nixon and Reagan's language about race and law and order. Did did Wallace change their rhetoric? Did they try to catch up to him? Or were they kind of on the same path already?
1: So uh, Reagan definitely on the same path. Uh, he wasn't quite as incendiary as as Wallace was not as as clearly racist as Wallace was, you know, but he would attack welfare recipients he would attack uh, uh, was he had a line he used to use about that a welfare recipient would call a, a welfare office and say that she had, didn't have a crib, um, uh, didn't, didn't have a, like a TV or something for her baby. And she said, well, what about a crib or something like that? And he said, well, the baby's in the TV box or something along those lines. Basically sort of this idea that, 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 that welfare recipients who are of course overwhelmingly black were basically exploiting the system and taking advantage of, of, of white taxpayers basically. So he would use that kind of writing. And of course, later, He'll forget this now, but when he ran for president in 1980, he talked about welfare queens driving Cadillacs in the inner cities. I mean, you can't really get more racist than that. Uh, but that was the kind of rhetoric that he used. But, you know, for whatever reason, Reagan was a more appealing figure than George Wallace. And so people, I think, kind of often dismissed how blatantly racist some of his appeal was. Nixon, on the other hand, you know, never used that kind of language. Not during not during 68. He tried to, tried to be a, a racial liberal. He tried to appear to be somebody who would... You know, who would slow down civil rights but wouldn't, but would, would certainly would take it, still take it seriously. Uh, as president, of course, his rhetoric changed. And by 72, he was using much more of the Wallace style rhetoric in his campaigns. Um, but he had the advantage in 68 that Wallace is running to his right on a much more racially divisive message. So uh, talking about crime, talking about law and order, talking about traditional values, cultural values. But, but Wallace, by being much more of a, uh, you know, uh, outlawed and figure, allows, you know, Nixon to look more moderate and more, you know, tame by comparison. He, he was, it, there was no question in my mind that Nixon was helped by the fact that Wallace, uh, uh, you know, was, was the more objectionable version of Dick Nixon and more objectionable sort of version of the, the law and order argument.
0: Do you have a sense of what Wallace's uh, motivation was in running for president? Was he trying to win or did he have some secondary motivation while he was uh, making the bid?
1: it's that's a that's another great question and and another one i've had a hard time figuring out i just i think for wallace it was just about personal aggrandizement you know i mean he would late he would say that he wanted to run because if he could throw the race into the house he could get certain benefits for for you know he could negotiate certain benefits for southern states but i don't really believe that i mean i think he just i think it was an ego trip for wallace um i think he got off on Traveling around the country and people praising him, and and you know the, the, the sort of glamour of presidential campaign, a presidential candidate, um, and I, I don't, I think that probably drove was probably the driving force for anything else. I think it was more his own personal need for for validation. Which, you know, I will say one thing. I mean, we have an artistic president today, but all these guys who ran in '68, I mean, they could give him a run for the money when it came to art.
0: <laughs> uh, let me turn to Reagan. I feel like in Reagan's story. You know, we talk about his speech for Goldwater a time for choosing in 64. We talk about the uh, the primary challenge against a sitting president of Gerald Ford in 1976, where he almost uh, takes him out. Uh, and then that culminates in his own election for president in 1980. Um the 68 campaign, it, I find, tends to be treated almost like a footnote. He kind of had this half-hearted campaign. You know, there weren't primaries back then. He wasn't, you know, barnstorming across the country. Um, do you think there's a greater relevance in the Reagan story um, that, uh, that uh, the 68 chapter is a part of?
1: Um, yeah, the, I'll say two things about this. First of all, what's fascinating about, about Reagan in 68 is that in his own memoir, he basically denies that he ever ran for president in 68. It's kind of a crazy thing, actually. He literally says it didn't happen. When, in fact, of course, he did. He announced his candidacy right before, right during the convention in, in Miami Beach uh, was a, and was received votes from, from the delegates. Um, he was actively running uh, even before that. He wasn't announced before. He, he wasn't announced the campaign before he got to the convention, but he was actively running. It was a weird thing that he kind of denies it ever happened. Um, the reason I think Reagan's interesting is because you have it's, it's that's because of Reagan and, because of Reagan and, and, and the liberal candidates from in that year who were Rockefeller first Romney and then later Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York, and George Romney was governor of Michigan, and I, you know, you couldn't ask for a better example of the divide within the Republican Party than to look at Reagan on one side and Romney and Rockefeller on the other side, and Nixon in the middle, because really you had with Rockefeller and Reagan you had the two wings the sort of the perfect example of the two wings of the Republican Party in the late 60s, the ascended conservative movement and conservative ideology that, that Reagan represented that certainly had been represented by, by Goldwater in 64. And then you have Rockefeller, who is the epitome of the sort of, you know, uh, liberal Eastern Republican. And so I, I, to me, it was fascinating because you had these two candidates running uh, basically on the, the wings of the party. And then you have Nixon running in the middle, sort of, try, trying to, try to straddle the fence between both sides but clearly leaning much more toward Reagan and to the right. And the way that I look at it was that 68 was in many ways a, a referendum on the, the ideological direction of the party. And people thought after Goldwater losing 64, the party moved more to the left. They thought conservatism was dead. That's what people said after, after, after Goldwater lost in 64. And what I think you see in 68 is that conservatism is not dead. It's alive and well, and it actually basically took over the Republican Party. Because with somebody like Nixon, who had been at one point in his career seen as a conservative and then later seen as a moderate, the way that he kind of navigated those two wings tells you a lot about where the party was going. And from a rhetorical perspective, he clearly adopted much more the language of the right than of the left. He didn't talk about wanting to win over black voters. Uh, He didn't. It wasn't something he made much of an effort to do. Uh, he appointed Spiro Agnew as his vice president, who was, you know, not the most racially tolerant person in the world. Um, he he's certainly, from a, from an atmospheric standpoint, he clearly was was adopting sort of the the Reagan approach rather than the Rockefeller and the Romney approach. I think that tells you a lot about where the party was headed. And I think it had Nixon lost, you know, you probably would have seen conservative movement having a hard time um, maintaining its momentum within the party, uh, which is one of the big, the great. What if questions of 68, if, if Nixon loses, does conservatism become the dominant ideology of the GOP? And I'm not so sure that it does, actually.
0: Uh, so you, you, you've you written, um, by confirming and endorsing the ideological conservatism and operational liberalism of the American voter, uh, in reference to the election of 68, uh, the election fed the country's political incoherence, hatred of big government in the abstract, and a fervent embrace of its specific Elements. So is, is that captured by the, the the Nixon campaign? I mean, Nixon's from the way you're talking about, it seems he seems more buffeted by these factors than than the master of them.
1: So you know, uh, well, Nixon's a very response, very very much of a, a um, responding to events kind of a politician. Um, and you know, look in '68, he doesn't run on a Goldwater-style anti-government agenda. He talks about increasing Social Security, which of course enrages Democrats because they don't really believe him on that. Um, as president, he doesn't make much of an effort to under to undo the Great Society agenda. If anything, he actually increases it—more <laughs> regulation, particularly environmental regulation, OSHA, EPA—all those all agencies come, come into existence under under Nixon. Um, I think Nixon understood, and this was partly reflected, I think, by what I've mentioned before about Wallace being being somewhat of a of a liberal on domestic policy. I think the thing that that Nixon understood that Goldwater didn't understand is that you could sound the rhetoric of of conservatism, but you kind of govern like a liberal because that's what Americans wanted. Americans may have bought into law and order argument, but they don't want you to cut your social security. (laughs) They didn't want you to cut their Medicare and Medicaid. They they wanted, you know, and and I think that divide, that incoherence is I think the most defining element of American politics today. Americans hate the government. They always complain about the government. In reality, they love the government. (laughs) They love government spending, right? The North conservatives who want to see their Medicare cut uh, not many or the social security cut, not many. And I think, you know, one thing that, that smart conservatives have figured out and Reagan figured this out is the way you, uh, the way you win elections is you don't, you don't govern like a true conservative. Uh, when you do so, you're going to upset voters. Um, and I think that one effective Republicans have sort of figured out this idea that you can, you can talk tough. You can, you can sound like a, you know, libertarian sound like, you know, you all government is evil. But when you push comes to shove, you don't actually, are, you know, carry that out. I always look back to like 94 and the, R- the Gingrich revolution is a good example of that. You know, these guys ran on cutting government spending and, and shrinking the size of government. And then they were dumb enough to believe people actually wanted that. Right. And they tried to implement it and they failed miserably because people didn't want that. People didn't want to see their Medicare and Medicaid cut. They didn't want education spending to be cut. They didn't want any of those things. Uh, and I think that divide, that incoherence between what people say about sort of rhetorically about government what they actually want from government Uh, it's it i don't know how you govern this country (laughs) effectively (laughs) with that kind of a divide because it is it is such a pronounced divide in this country uh you know and and one in which republicans have exploited for years and years to their political benefit um but as you see i think now with republicans in congress it it comes back to bite them when they try to actually implement, you know, ideologically conservative uh, policies.
0: So to try to connect '68 to today, and, and, and you know, the hardcore version of your, of your book came out before the 2016 election was uh, completed. Uh, but you talk about '68 as being uh, this inflection point, um, tectonic plates, in the two-party shifting backlash to um, racial progress. Um, it, it's not too hard to see possible parallels between 68 and 2016, correct? Not at all. Um, And I I
1: just focus on one that I think is the most important one. You know, I I mentioned about the racial divide and American politics that comes out of 68. And I think it's funny, you know, you work on a book like this and you you draw all kinds of conclusions during the research and then the book comes out. And then uh, as you sort of events unfold in, in real time, it makes you sort of look look back at what you wrote and think, well, maybe, maybe I have to expand the way I think about this election. And, uh, you know, one point that I make a, a lot in the book is that this racial divide was hugely important. Um, that Republicans, Republican party came to be seen as sort of the party of white America and the Democratic party was seen as a party of black America. Um, and anybody who's been around American politics long enough knows that to be the case. Um, that's just been true for, for 50 years. Uh, and what, and, and I think in a lot of ways, those, those distinctions are implicit in our politics. They don't, even, they don't have to be expressed. I think a lot of white voters look at the two parties and think that Republicans are going to look out for us and Democrats are going to look out for them. Um, and I think that, that implicit bias, that implicit divide that exists in the electorate is one that I think benefited Republicans in a lot of ways um, and certainly benefited Trump. I think the difference with Trump uh, is that he, he he was able to draft off of those ra- that racial divide while also being more explicitly racist and winning the support of people who I actually honestly believe had tuned out the Republican Party because they weren't racist enough. I, I actually really do think that if you look at his support in places like Pennsylvania and Florida, where he won, you know, I think, 400,000 more votes in both places than Romney, I think it's a factor of voters who were turned on by his openly racist message. And you would think, okay, well, that's, that may be the case. And I think the part that I sort of missed is that you have a situation in which a lot of white voters would be, would be turned off by Trump's racist message. But the reality is, I think a lot of white voters still view the two parties from a, through a racial lens. And so even if they didn't love everything that, that Trump said, they still saw him as somebody who would look out for their interests more than the Democrats would. Um, and I think, you know, Trump benefited both from being a racist but also from the fact that the Republican Party is a party that is, you know, a party of white America and has been a party that's exploited racial fears for 50 years. So I think, I think that's a lot of what the explanation of where we are today is. That, and that racial divide has become, of course, more pronounced. And that you still have voters who, even after all of Trump's, I mean, just excesses and terrible behavior, that they still find a way to support him. You know, what that tells me is that that, that racial sort of division is so powerful and so um, and so shapes voter decision-making that it, it continues, that, that there's nothing that, that Trump can do to lose their support. I mean, there are plenty of voters who are not openly racist who are still supporting Trump because they still see the Republican Party as part of party that, that's looking out for them.
0: The book is American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division published by Oxford University Press, available in paperback. Michael A. Cohen, thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. My
1: pleasure. Enjoy the conversation.